Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Peter Waltz. Lately on the program, we've focused on specific issues and businesses and organizations impacted by the spread of coronavirus. And in addition to touching on important stories and events that are happening all around the world, we're also fortunate to dial in local ELA lawyers that are practicing on the ground in these jurisdictions and are working daily to help their local clients through these difficult times. Now, we've covered a lot of different areas of law and a lot of different industries. One of the business sectors that we've covered is immigration. And in today's program, we're going to focus on the higher education sector and how this is impacting that space. Joining us on the program is Melanie Keeney, Chairwoman for Tooth Keeney in St. Louis, and Lee Cole, Chair of the Education Group at Dinsey in Vermont. Ladies, welcome to the program. Thank you. So let's, uh, let's kind of divide this in two pieces if we can. I think let's talk about the students first, and then we'll jump into the employees. And Lee, I'd like to go to you first. So let's talk about how COVID-19 is impacting international students on campus. How is this impacting remote education? Can you fill us in on that? Yeah, sure. So it's a little more complicated for international students when institutions move to online education because in the normal rules, there are restrictions on how many courses or credits an international student who's getting their visa for being an international student and therefore having to be on campus in the United States there's a limit on how many of their courses they can take online because you could do that from anywhere. You don't need a visa to study online. You don't have to come to the United States for that. And that restriction temporarily has been lifted. So that's been a very helpful thing. And it's been lifted by, you know, not by institutions, but overall by the Student Exchange Visitor Program, SEVP, which is part of ICE in the Homeland Security Agency. And they just decided that, you know, we're not going to have that restriction anymore. So that's been a really positive development. And that's just temporary for during this COVID-19 online education period. And another positive development, something helpful, has been that SEVP is now allowing schools to leave the student's record, their online record, which we call the SEVIS record, the schools can leave the SEVIS record open even if the student is off campus, is studying from abroad, even if they've interrupted their education because right now what the courses they need, let's say a lab, are not being offered online. But they're intending to resume as soon as the school can accommodate them either on campus or in an online format. They can leave that student's SEVIS record open. And that's very helpful because once the CVS record is terminated, the student has to go through a procedure or apply for a new visa stamp outside the United States, get a new CVS record. It's something that schools want to avoid for their students. It makes things more difficult for them. So that's very helpful. And just one other thing that bears mention is usually there's this five-month rule that if an international student is outside the United States for five months or more, then it's as if they left and are returning on a new program, even if they're just coming back to resume at their same institution. And right now, the five-month rule is not applying for students who are only off campus or abroad because of COVID-19. So, Lee, is this treated like study abroad? Well, you know, there's been some confusion about that. So, good question. No, study abroad is different. So study abroad is when a student that you are sponsoring for F1 international student status no longer is now being at your campus and they're not in your institution anymore. They've gone abroad to study either in a different program or a different institution. And during that time, 
there are some rules that apply for study abroad. But this is different. This is when an international student is still studying at your institution and you're still responsible for them. But they may be abroad because they're doing it remotely due to COVID-19. And this allows the institution in the United States to still be responsible for that student, keep their CVS record open, even though they are abroad and studying because of COVID-19. So that's a helpful change temporarily for COVID-19 purposes. Yeah, sounds great. So, so some of these students also, when they're here, are also authorized to work. So what about if a student's authorized to work either during their studies or after graduation? How's that impacted, Lee? Yeah, that's been a little tricky because some of the international students are engaging either in curricular practical training, which is referred to as CPT, or optional practical training, referred to as OPT. And there's some question about, okay, if the student is now abroad and they're authorized for CPT or OPT employment in the United States, how can they do that and maintain their F1 status? And can the school keep their CVS record open? So anyway, to cut to the chase, yes, if that they can engage in CPT or OPT, even from abroad, if the school can document and or I guess the employer has to document or the student to the school satisfaction that they can actually be doing that job from abroad. So if it's lab work, bench work, no, probably that's not feasible. But if the student can do their work online remotely for the U.S. employer to maintain their F1 program status, then that is fine. You know, working online remotely by Zoom or whatever, that's fine. Or the guidance specifies that they could also do this if the U.S. employer that they're authorized to work for has an entity abroad that they can work for abroad and still just continue with their F-1 program that way. But one specific thing that bears note is that if a student is authorized for a STEM extension of OPT, so that's years two and three of OPT that only certain STEM graduates are qualified for, the employer has to notify the DSO, the designated school official at the F1 sponsoring school, if there are changes to that STEM OPT employment. So that's just an important thing for employers to keep in mind. Thanks for that. Now, let's talk about healthcare. There's a huge need for healthcare workers. So what about doctors who have to have work visas? How's that impacted, Lee? Well, you know, generally doctors are treated the same as other professionals, and we don't have special visa categories for doctors, unfortunately. In many situations, that would be helpful, and particularly in this COVID-19 healthcare crisis that we have. So a lot of doctors are either working in the typical professional visa categories, H-1B, E-3, H-1B-1, O-1, that sort of thing. Or they might be studying, and if they're studying, they could be in F-1 international student status, which we've been talking about. Or if they are an international medical grad, a foreign medical grad training in the United States, then they have to be in J-1 status, J-1 exchange visitor status. And this program does have some special rules for physicians. And the um, regulatory agency that assists and administers this program is ECFMG, the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates. And ECFMG immediately became engaged on the COVID-19 topics and worked on a few changes with the State Department, which is the, you know, the U.S. Department of State, which runs our consular post and issues visa stamps abroad. So one of the good changes that ECFMG worked out with the State Department is to confirm that consular, U.S. consular posts around the world will continue to process visa stamps for physicians, whether they're applying in H-1B, 
for an H-1B visa or whether they're applying for a J-1 visa, despite the fact that, for the most part, visa operations are shut down at consulate posts right now due to COVID-19. So that's very helpful. Also, ECFMG worked out with the State Department that these J-1 programs, which typically end when the training program ends, so typically in June or July each year, medical training programs tend to end. And we're talking about residencies, fellowships, that sort of thing. The programs can be extended for two months to allow the physicians longer time to complete their training if they got interrupted because of COVID-19, or if they need more time to transition into employment afterward, or if they're not able to leave and go home because of travel restrictions. So this additional two-month extension is really helpful. And another sort of technical thing is that State Department has agreed to accept electronic statements of need from the home countries of the physicians, which in regulation, it says they have to be in hard copy. So that's a small thing, but it's important. And honestly, anything in immigration where if our regulatory agencies will move to allowing electronic submissions, we're thankful. It's going to change things and move it along. You know, it might. We're, We're starting to see some indications of that. So I hope that will be the case. So now you were mentioning, you know, how some of these programs end and that people need to travel back. So what about people whose status runs out? Let's say their studies end or their job ends, uh, but they can't travel home because of COVID-19. What happens to them? Well, there's a lot of that happening right now. Even, you know, for whatever reason, the people are supposed to travel home and they're just not able to depart. So on April 13th, we did get some clarification, some guidance from U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which has been, it's received a mixed reaction from immigration practitioners because it seems as if they may have just been saying, yes, we will continue to consider your cases case by case without any particular new relief or any assurance that we're going to help anybody. What USCIS did was reiterate that if, you know, under any circumstance, if you're unable to depart or you're unable to apply for change or extension of status and stay here, in a timely manner, they will consider your circumstances and decide whether you, um, you know, it was outside of your control and whether they should exercise some discretion to say, oh, okay, well, you, you were late, but that's okay. And I think there's one perspective, which this clarification was helpful because at least it's saying, yeah, we're going to take COVID-19 into consideration. We get that. People can't travel, you know, so just explain that and, and we will, we will consider that and we're going to be reasonable. And some other The other perspective on that is, oh, great. They're just saying, you know, like always, if you have an issue, explain it to us and we'll we'll see what we can do for you, but no guarantees. It would have been helpful to have something more specific saying we are going to, you know, until the COVID-19 travel restriction is lifted by the president of the United States, we will understand late filings and act accordingly. But at least we have some a communication from USCIS saying we're going to take this into consideration. And you could then add on, you know, don't worry, we're going to be reasonable. And I think, unfortunately, in the immigration context, sometimes the agencies aren't that reasonable. So it leaves us a little bit nervous about that. I can imagine. Well, I'm sure clients are asking these kind of questions, and uh, it's it's exciting to know that folks like you out there can at least help them move through that. Hey, let's move the conversation over to Melanie, and let's talk about COVID-19 on campus and how it's affecting employees. So, Melanie, uh, let's just talk a little bit about the employee aspects. Tell us what's going on in that space. Well, Pete, you know, this is a this is a tough area right now. People who are on visas, you know, professors or professionals, other individuals at institutions of higher education, everybody wants to be in status. Everybody wants to be in compliance. And when you're faced with this COVID-19 crisis and work situations change, everybody 
really worries that are we going to be able to maintain status and compliance. And so how you do that, how an institution does uh, maintain status depends really on the visa category that we're talking about. So when we're looking at professionals at institutions of higher education, they may hold a variety of visa statuses. They might be an H-1B visa holder. They might be an E-3 visa holder, which is an E-3 is like an H-1B for Australians. Um, there's H-1B ones, and those are for people from Singapore and Chile. So those are all professional specialty occupation visas. There's also a TN visa under NAFTA for professionals, and there's an O-1 for extraordinary ability individuals. And so what kind of flexibility is available given the COVID-19 pandemic, I think really depends on what category you're in. So for instance, the TNs and the Os, there may be more flexibility with respect to those visa categories with looking at remote locations and such. Whenever there's a material change, the attorney that's advising the college or university is going to be looking at, do I need to amend that visa? Do I need to take some action to make sure that this, this employee remains in status and that the institution remains in compliance? When you're looking at H-1Bs and E-3s and H-1B-1s, those specialty occupation visas have some very specific requirements related to wages and um, attestations that are made to the Department of Labor. So for instance, with the H visas, the E3 and the H-1B1, the employer must file what's called a labor condition application when they're trying to get that visa for that person. And that labor condition application, the LCA, has to be filed with the Department of Labor and get approved by the Department of Labor. And it's an attestation that says, we're going to place this worker at this location and we're going to pay this worker X salary, whatever it is. It has to be at least the prevailing wage or the actual wage, whichever is higher. So now we've got this, you know, we're in the middle of this pandemic and people aren't necessarily working at the address listed on that LCA, right? You may have physicians that are being redeployed or, or nurses or other people redeployed to other locations. You may have people who are working remotely, which is the vast majority of people right now. So the question was raised, well, how do we remain in compliance with Department of Labor regulations with these new locations? And so Department of Labor did issue some guidance uh, related to this. There was some older guidance that we'd hoped would remain in place, informal guidance from Department of Labor that said, hey, if you've got an employee who's working remotely from home, you might not need to repost or amend or whatever. But the most recent guidance that came out in March does not reference that. And so the safest approach right now is that if you have an employee who's now working remotely from home and they live within the metropolitan statistical area of the location listed on the labor condition application, then the good news is you don't have to amend the H-1B, but the safest thing to do is to post the LCA or LCA notice of posting at the employee's home. And that seems crazy, right, Pete? You know, yeah. right? I mean, that seems crazy. Just where do you post that? You're supposed to post it where people can see it. So, uh, so it goes on the refrigerator. It goes on the refrigerator with a magnet. It sounds like that's right. Well, in two locations, refrigerator and bathroom. That's what I would recommend. But anyway, so I think you know people are looking at us like we're crazy, but that's the safest thing to do. There are other ways of complying with that obligation to post. One way to do it is you could send an email directly to all employees. That's one way to do it. You can electronically post. An employer could 
electronically post on like a, an electronic bulletin board. And many employers are having to do that anyway with the family's first posting requirements and such. So that may be a good option. But the bottom line is that's still probably the safest advice. So then you think to yourself, okay, what about that employee that doesn't live within the MSA or a reasonable commuting distance? I will say there was some guidance that was just issued last week, I believe, about those commuters. And uh, Department of Labor did say if it's a reasonable commuting distance, even if it's like across a state line, then there's not necessarily the, the need to amend the H-1B. But if someone is living outside of the MSA or that reasonable commuting distance, then you're looking at either a short-term placement, perhaps that might apply. There are some regulations that give some flexibility for placements of 30 days or perhaps 60 days. Um, there's a big caveat with those, though. Um, employers have to really look hard at those regulations, Pete, because uh, they require paying incidentals and like lodging and such. And for the 60-day requirement, it actually specifically says the employee can't work there. So the 60-day requirement, I would argue, really doesn't apply. So if none of that applies, then you're looking at amending the H-1B and having to file an amendment. So that's just something that from a compliance standpoint, of course, employers want to be in compliance. And we want to make sure that the professionals, those on, on visas, remain in compliance as well. So that's that's a big deal and, and something that I think all employers need to be aware of. So what about these remote I-9s? Are they temporarily allowed or what's the status with those? So it's funny, Pete, we have been hoping for years that we would get some relief on the I-9 employment verification requirement. And you may remember, Pete, that the Immigration Reform and Control Act basically says that employers are supposed to make sure that when they're hiring somebody, that that person is eligible to work. And so there's a form that has to be completed. The employer has to review the actual documentation from the employee to confirm that the person has, has appropriate work authorization. And so we've been hoping for years that they would allow that to be done remotely because many employers have offsite locations, you know, field offices, or if you're dealing with the universities, they may have a lab somewhere else and HR is housed, you know, on campus. But that has not been allowed in the past. I am happy to say that we got guidance uh, during this pandemic that they, there is a relaxation from the Department of Homeland Security in the I-9 context where they will allow employers to remotely review those documents, either you know, by email or by fax or by Skype, whatever it is. There is a requirement. There are very specific detailed requirements, I should say, about how to complete that I-9, and you have to reference COVID-19. And after the pandemic passes, within three days of the person being able to provide those documents in person, that still has to happen and be documented. So one caveat I would tell you about, Pete, that I was surprised to see in the guidance is that these remote I-9s are only allowed if there are no workers on site. So, you know, we have a lot of academic institutions that have hospitals and there are workers right now, of course, physicians, nurses, techs, all these people who are on site. So those institutions arguably are not able to do the remote I-9s right now. And so there is a caveat that says, well, you know, if there's a quarantine in place, you know, maybe, or, you know, there might be some wiggle room there. But I would encourage all listeners 
to take a look at that guidance and think about your individual situations to make sure it applies. Now, let's talk about the inspection of those documents. So when the employer does need to inspect those documents, what happens if employees bring different documents than what they had for their original inspection? How does that impact things? You know, there is some wiggle room there as well. You know, the employer is not supposed to sort of insist on inspecting the same documents. They're supposed to accept whatever the documents are that are presented. So again, you know, there's some technical requirements about complying with the I-9. There's, if you look at the I-9 form, there's a column A, column B, and column C documents that are acceptable. And column A is acceptable on its face. And column B and column C are in combination. So I think employers should really just be careful when they're looking at documenting both at the beginning and at the end of this COVID-19. They're doing remote I-9s, make sure they're complying with the requirements and completing section two or perhaps section three if it's a a rehire appropriately. And and I hope people are hiring during the pandemic. That would be great. But unfortunately, and I know we'll talk about in a few minutes, employers are having to cut employees and that also has implications for workers. Yeah, let's talk about non-U.S. employees and, you know, what are their opportunities to qualify for unemployment benefits? Do they have any opportunity there? Well, you know, it's interesting. So Lee talked earlier today about students on F-1 visas and those students who have employment authorization may qualify for state or local benefits. And it is something that is a state by state benefit. So I would encourage listeners to make sure they check with their local employment council to confirm whether whether students would be eligible for unemployment. They don't qualify for like a federal unemployment benefit, but from a state standpoint, there really, there are some opportunities there. Well, let, let's talk about, I've seen a lot of information in the media about this new public charge rule and uh, should non-U.S. employees accept unemployment? Well, I got to tell you, Pete, this is an area that is brand spanking new the new public charge requirements really went into effect in February. And so we're struggling with what they mean. Um, There's not a lot of guidance out there, but I think the good news is if we look at what the definition of a public benefit has been, you know, in like the USCIS manuals and such, when you're talking about unemployment, I don't think that probably qualifies would be considered a public benefit because it's really an earned benefit. And so I think it's different, and we're hopeful that it does not disqualify someone for perhaps a green card. That's what we worry about is down the road, you may have someone on a visa, whatever visa it is, and later they want to get a green card. And the last step of that process, they have to complete a document called an I-485 application, and they have to attest whether they have ever received public benefits. And if the answer is yes they may not be eligible for a green card. Oh, big problem. A lawful permanent residence. It's a big gotcha moment, right? So we're super worried about that right now. And that's why it's such a a big issue and people are are worried about taking unemployment. I don't think the unemployment compensation would disqualify someone for a green card because I don't think it qualifies as a public charge situation. And so I, I think that's something we really need to watch and see if we get more guidance There's another kind of benefit that an employee might receive, like under the families first, people are worried, like, what if they take paid leave? You know, is that going to disqualify them for a green card? Is that going to be considered a public charge type situation? And I think the answer is probably no, uh, since that benefit is really granted by the employer and not really by the government. 
So we're hopeful that's the case. The $1,200 payments under the CARES Act, that's a big hot one right now, right? You know, does that qualify as a, a public benefit or is it really not? And I think it is probably more like an earned benefit, almost perhaps more like a tax credit. And if you look at the manual, what's the definition of a public benefit or a benefit that disqualifies someone from obtaining a green card down the road, tax credits are exempted. They're not considered public benefits that would impact your ability to get a green card. And so I'm hopeful that that's the case. There is no specific guidance on it. However, I would suggest in this situation where we're, everything's moving kind of fast and furious, uh, that everybody watch that. So I'm hopeful that that is not going to disqualify someone. Now, we talked about the remote worker, clearly, and these remote locations, but obviously some work on campus can't be done remotely, like working in labs or working in a hospital, like you described before. So what if these non-U.S. workers have to be laid off? How's that handled? You know what? This is a really sad and tough area. You know, if you've got work that just cannot be done, you know, like lab work, there may be some flexibility in certain categories, but when it comes to, say, the H-1B, the H-1B-1 the E, you know, some of these other categories where the employer has an obligation to file that, remember, labor condition application and post it and do all of that with the Department of Labor. There are very specific penalties that would apply if an H-1B worker, for instance, were what we call benched. And what does that mean? So if you're talking about a furlough, what is a furlough, right? So a furlough is where an employer doesn't fire, doesn't terminate the employment, but puts that worker in unpaid status, keeps them on the benefits for a period of time. And most employees would prefer to be furloughed than terminated, right? Because they their benefits continue and such. But, you know, unfortunately in the H-1B context, there is guidance that talks about how if an H-1B worker is in unproductive status by virtue of an employer decision. And so that person is now on furlough is not being paid, that's a violation of the Department of Labor regulations. And there are fines and penalties that can be assessed, back pay, for instance, during those periods of time. So then you think, okay, well, is there ever a time where someone would be furloughed uh, or in unproductive status where it, it would be okay, right? It's, it wouldn't violate some kind of regulation. And the answer is yes, there are times like that. And the Department of Labor has regulations that kind of list examples of when that's okay. So if it's voluntary, like let's say I wanted to take care of my sick mother, then I will take unpaid status. That's okay. If I want to, they have an example. If you want to go tour the United States, I'm not sure anybody's doing that right now, but that is, that was a choice. That's a voluntary choice by an employee and that would be okay. They also have an example of, you know, where, an employee sort of gets hit by the bus, right? Proverbial bus and mm. is incapacitated and can't work. Well, that's okay. That could be an unpaid uh, status. But then if you want to aggressively read the regulations, you know, and this is something that each listener should talk to their own attorneys about, about furloughs. But, you know, if you talk about a pandemic when there's shelter in place orders, is that really an employer decision? Is that really a government decision? Is there some wiggle room there? You know, maybe there is. I think the safest choice is to not put an H-1B worker on unpaid status unless it's, and then people say, well, what if they volunteer for unpaid status? What if they say, you know, I don't, just don't pay me. 
And the worry there is that that person may later say, well, it wasn't really voluntary. So there, there are all kinds of nuances here, Pete, that we've just got to, you know, people need to look at the particular circumstances. There's another issue that I worry about with respect to furloughs, laying off. Let's talk about layoff for a second. Let's just say that the employer says, I've got to lay off these H-1B workers and these U.S. citizens and these other workers because they're just not working this lab. We're going to have to make some tough decisions here. What does that mean? In order to actually effectively terminate an employee in the immigration context, you want to make sure the employer has to notify the government and they have to send in a notice to the USCIS that they've, they've terminated the employment. You know, they have to offer the employee return transportation to the home country. That is also a requirement. You know, so there are those pieces to things. Well, what happens to the employee? And what we hope is that there are some regulations that allow for a grace period when the employee has been terminated or there's a cessation of work. And we've wondered if that was triggered by a furlough. I don't really think it is. I think it's really more of that layoff context. And there's a 60-day grace period or the the lesser of the 60 days or whatever time is remaining on the individual's H-1B visa. You know, and, and that allows that person to either pack up and head home, which would be hard right now for a lot of people, can't get flights home, or to look for other employment. And it's also possible that employer might rehire the employee and have to file again. So this is another tough area that, that people are dealing with. So one other thing to, to mention here is potential discrimination issues, because we worry that what if in the furlough context, let's just say, or even in the termination context, if you have five workers all doing the same thing, one of them is on an H-1B and you, you lay off or you furlough four U.S. citizen workers and, and the one H-1B worker you keep employed, you keep paying, could there be some potential claims by the U.S. citizen workers? And there are Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Immigration and Nationality Act, all have provisions that protect U.S. workers. So there could be an argument about, you know, discrimination in that context. Maybe there's an argument that the compliance with the law, with the H-1B might be a defense. I don't know. All I know is that it's an issue and you really need to make sure if you're going to do something like that, if an employer is going to do that, that they have a legitimate non-discriminatory reason for choosing to treat an employee differently. And so that's, that's the crossover from immigration into employment. I think it's really an important area to look at and make you know, make sure they're making decisions in a non-discriminatory manner. Yeah, so lots going on there. Well, ladies, this has been a very informative time. So just looking ahead, Lee, I'd like to bring you back in the program as well here. What do we see on the horizon? Lee, go ahead. Well, with regard to students, international students on campus, it's an evolving situation. At this point, schools are discussing when to resume on-campus operations when to bring students back to campus, you know, whether they need to continue to offer another semester or two online. So we just need to stay tuned as schools make these determinations and make communications to their students and their communities. And this is all going on now. I think it was just recently published that Boston University had announced that some questions about their fall semester. And I think we'll be hearing more and more news about that from schools. So stay tuned. And Melanie, what are your parting comments for our group? Well, on a hopeful side, maybe there's a silver lining that we can, you know, we've lessons learned. Maybe the Immigration Service will allow us to have some flexibility with electronic filings in the future. 
we've wanted that in the past. Right now, they have given us some flexibility with how signatures are, are required now. We can do some photocopies of signatures as opposed to wet signatures. And, and I'm hopeful that there may be some sort of a positive effect in the future as a result of this crisis. So I'm going to go with the optimist side, Pete. I'm hopeful that we're going to get through this crisis and there will be some grace uh, given to us by uh, by the immigration service in the employment context, as Lee has mentioned in the, in the student context, and that someday we get back to normal or maybe a, a new normal. There we go. Well, Lee, Melanie, thanks so much for your comments. And again, immigration is one of the major topics we cover in the ELA, and we're so fortunate to have both of you uh, available to help our clients for the listening audience that would like to reach Melanie or Lee Cole or any of our lawyers around the world. You can search for them on the ELA website. That is ELA.law. Go to the big Find a Lawyer widget in the center of the page. Click on the drop-down box. Choose the jurisdiction or the practice area you're interested in and reach out to our lawyers directly. Also, while you're on our website, you can sign up to receive information from upcoming webinars, download white papers, access on-demand content, or get a copy of the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. Lee, Melanie, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you'll be safe today. Thanks, Pete. Good talking to you. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.